through chapter 11 and 12 today, what we're going to see is kind of two things that are really prominent through this story. The first one's this, that it's God who gives the victory. We're going to read this time and time again, that it's God who brings the victory on behalf of his people. That's always an encouraging thing to know this, that in our battles in the things that we're dealing with in life, it's God as we rely on him who's going to bring victory in our life. The second thing we're going to see is this, is that Joshua was the text tells us over and over again that Joshua obeyed what the Lord told him to do. He obeyed uh, the Lord in his dealings with the enemy. He obeyed the Lord in the instructions that Moses had given him. I mean, except in the one situation with Gibeon where Joshua and the people had been uh, deceived into this relationship of peace. In every other area, we see Joshua as a faithful man, a servant of the Lord. So let's check out what happens in the north, okay? So chapter 11, we'll dive in here. It says this, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent all these names, okay? So you just got to let me stumble over them and bear with me. (laughs) He sent to Jobab, the king of Medan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in Arabah, south of, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naf, Naphtor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all of their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all the kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Maram to fight against Israel. Wow, it's quite the description, eh? This army that is like the sands on the seashore. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus says that they actually estimate that this army was about 300,000 foot soldiers. So that's pretty serious. And that they had about 10,000 horsemen and they had 20,000 iron chariots. Now, this is kind of crazy just to think about that when we go back all these century, millennia, to, to consider that this was a serious military force. And Israel... What have they got? They've got nobody on horseback, okay? No one. They don't have a single chariot, okay? Just so that we're clear on this, there's no chariots among them. There's no one on horseback. They were at a disadvantage, militarily speaking, except for this reason. They had somebody else on their side, uh, the Lord. And you plus the Lord is always a majority in any battle that you ever have. You plus the Lord. So, you know, the question is often this, whose side are you on? Because if you're on the Lord's side, no matter what it appears to be, you're on the side of the winning side. So this northern coalition gathers at the waters of Miram. So just to get a little bit of a sense of the geography, if you've got a map in the back of your Bible or you know that land a little bit, this is just to the north of the Sea of Galilee, okay? So those that have been there, it's about 16 kilometers north of Galilee, uh, the, the waters of Maram. So let's read on. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizrapoth Mayim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now this is, I'm going to talk about battle lots here today. And I'm going to kind of try to button it up at the end. But you read this and this is like crazy. As you read this, it's like there's no, we saw last week this miraculous hailstorm where God struck down enemy soldiers. We saw last week this prayer that Joshua gave in the battle against the south that the Lord heard and answered and he stretched out the day so that they could continue on in battle. But this time round, there's no big miraculous story. There's no like, wow, this happened or that happened. It's just, God said this, don't be afraid. I'm going to give the enemy into your hands. And Joshua and the army went for it. And, and no details are told us, but it's clear the battle was the Lord's. It was the Lord who brought the victory. And all we read is this, is that Joshua was obedient. He just does what God tells him to do. And he hamstrings the horses and he burns the chariots. And it's kind of a strange instruction. You know, hamstring all these horses. We've got some horse lovers out there. How many horse lovers out there? Sorry, Sue, they hamstrung all the horses. It's terrible. Sounds so awful, but you know, the scripture says this, that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, the kings of Israel were told that they were not to accumulate horses for themselves. You know, horses in those ancient cultures is like symbol of power and strength. David said this, that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And horses and chariots, it's just interesting, in that culture, we're actually associated with the worship of the sun. We see this elsewhere in scripture. Remember Josiah in Kings? I think it's uh, 1 Kings 23, 2 Kings 23. Josiah leads the nation of Israel in a revival. And as he does, as he does so, and he's turning the hearts of his people, he's leading them back to God. One of the things that he did was he went to the house of the Lord and the Bible tells us that he took the chariots that were in the house of God and the statues of horses and he burned them because they were dedicated to the worship of the sun. The, the house of God had actually been perverted. And the picture here in scripture is this, is like our trust is to be in the Lord. So Joshua was called to hamstring the things that God's people may have falsely put their hope in. And I wonder what they did with all those horses after that. McDonald's was set up for a while. It's terrible. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. But look at, I would say this, like, this is a good lesson that if there is something that you hope in besides Jesus, there is something that you're putting your trust in. You're relying for your strength, the strength of your life, and it, it gives you a sense of safety, and yet it leads you to the place where you're not trusting in the Lord. You know, it's just a good practice to do this, to hamstring it. Find a way to cripple that thing. doesn't mean you need to get rid of it maybe entirely, but you've got to find a way to hamstring it so that its strength isn't what you trust in. So that it's not the object of your hope. So that it's not the object of your affection. 
or your worship. Only Jesus is worthy of your trust. Only Jesus. And that makes me think, I'm like, okay, well, what areas are there? Well, one could be maybe your money, you know? That's why I think that the Scripture teaches us to, to be giving with that which we have. Because it's a way of hamstringing us from hamstringing the money so that we don't trust in it or, or whatever it, it might be. Only Jesus is worthy of our trust. And so Joshua was instructed and he obediently did this. Hey, Joshua, you can't begin to trust in horses just because I brought you the victory. Now check out verse 10. And Joshua turned back at that time and he captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all of those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured, and he struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded him. But none of the cities that stood, none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So what this text tells us is faith, faithfully over and over and over again, we see Joshua fulfilling that which God instructed, fulfilling that which Moses had ordered. He left nothing undone. And there's like this emphasis that, that part of victory, part of victory in, in the battles that we're involved in, that the Lord calls us to is this, that we be obedient to the Lord. And here as I read that, I just think, man, I can see a picture of Jesus, can't you? Who faithfully and obediently did all that the Word of God instructed. Who did all that His Father said. Jesus actually said this in John 17 as He prayed for His disciples. He said, Lord, I, Father, I've accomplished everything You've given me to do. Amazing. Amazing. And so as we read this, here's Joshua. He's sure to burn the city of Hazor. He burnt, the one city that he burns is the one that had been counted chief amongst all the cities. It's, it's actually only one of three cities. As they conquered all of these cities in the land of Canaan, they only burned Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. The rest of the cities were left intact so that the Israelites could move into them. Because that's what God had actually promised them in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord promised them an inheritance. And He said, you'll, you'll receive large, flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of goods you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Just as the Lord through Moses had promised. So, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to His people. They're like entering a land flowing with milk and honey. No more dwelling in tents. They're moving right into cities. So let's read on. Verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all, of, all the Negev, 
and the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Balgad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden the hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter here. Verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron and Debir and from Anab and from the hill country of Judah and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So we read this, this is like a summary of the defeat of all of the northern kingdom, but, but even more of that, this is like a summary chapter of the entire defeat of the land of the Canaanites, and it all happened under the leadership of Joshua, and here again we just see Joshua as a faithful man, a servant of the Lord, and for all practical purposes, as we come to the end of this chapter, the, what we see is that the army of Israel had conquered all of the land, conquered all of their enemies. Now, we're going to see in the weeks to come that individual tribes, we're going to still have to take care of areas in their allotment, in their inheritance. Uh, but the big battles at this point are all done. And verse 18 says something there. It says that it, it took a long time. Joshua did this. This battle was a long time. In fact, it was seven years. Text doesn't tell us that, but it took seven years from the time that they had entered the land until this point. And and we're going to see that uh, in the weeks to come as we talk about Caleb, because the scripture just shows us Caleb's age as they entered the land. And so it was a seven-year period. And it's interesting here that the scripture tells us that the Lord hardened the hearts of their enemies. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Uh, this reference to God hardening the hearts of the Canaanites kind of reminds me of the story of the Exodus. God's people being freed from slavery in Egypt. Um, there in that story, when God's people came out of Egypt, uh, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That's what the scripture tells us. And then the Lord sent plagues against the gods of Egypt. And a careful reading, when you read the Exodus passage and you read the story of God's children coming out of the, the land of Egypt, you see, you see this really clearly that God's actions against Egypt were actually tied to the heart of Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's defiance against God. And, you know, Pharaoh, he would respond to Moses and Aaron, they would come to him with a message from the Lord and they would say, 
The Lord says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh would say things like, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Why should I let Israel go? And repeatedly, the, the account of Exodus that Moses writes for us tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. And as a result, the Lord sent plagues. The purpose that God sent those plagues, he said, was so that Egypt would come to know that he was the Lord. Now, you think about it, this, the story of the Exodus. You know, God could have forced Israel's release after just one plague. But his purpose was to display his power against the gods of the Egyptians. So as Pharaoh hardened his heart, the text tells us at the same time, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is an amazing thing, this sometimes confusing thing that a human being can harden their heart against God, and yet at the same time, God can harden their heart. And, and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, when you look at the Exodus story, it has to be seen in the context of Pharaoh's stubbornness, Pharaoh's resistance to the Lord. And as we read this, you know, we have to see the Canaanites' resistance in the same way, the hardening of their hearts in, in the same way. You know, I think this, what if they had been willing to repent like Rahab? <laughs> you know, the outcome could have been so different. Could have been so different, but they didn't repent like Rahab. They continued in their stubbornness. They continued in their resistance to the Lord, who the Scripture tells us had been reaching out to them for more than 400 years. And it's crazy as you read it. I'm going to talk about this in a minute more as we get, as we get to the end here. But one of the things also that's really cool in here is this, is that, that the writer tells us in great detail that, that Joshua defeated the Anakim. <laughs> the Anakim were the giants in the land. When 40 years earlier, Joshua and Caleb and 10 other men had been sent in as spies into the land and they came back to Moses and they brought the report. They said, the land truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb said, let's do it. Let's go take it. God's given us this land. But 10 other spies rebelled and they said this, no, there's giants in the land. Yes, there's, yes, the land's... <laughs> A land flowing with milk and honey. There's God's blessing is there, but there are giants in that land, and we can't. We're too small. We're small to battle these guys. But, but this text tells us that Joshua cut them off, and it, and it tells us that all over the place, he pursued the Anakim. And actually, it's interesting that it says that he cut them off everywhere except in one place. It says this, verse 22. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath. Do you remember who's from Gath? Does anybody remember who's from Gath? Goliath. Goliath is from Gath. The only place the giants in the land survived. Joshua cut them off. Cut them off. And so this is amazing just as God works through this man and in his life, as he's obedient to the Lord, the Lord gives him victory over the very giants that stood in the way of God's people entering into their promise. So let's read on. Chapter 12. We're not going to do this all the way through the book of Joshua. I'm just going to tell you this. As we get next week and we start 
breaking down the inheritance in city after city. We're just going to like touch down, touch down, touch down. This morning we're going to read chapter 12, okay? It says this. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. From the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon and all of Arabah eastward. Okay, so just to clarify this. This is the list of kings that were defeated in the east, okay? On the eastern side of the Jordan River. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok. The boundary of the Amorites, that is, half of Gilead and the Arabah to the Sea of Chinneroth, that is Galilee, that's the Sea of Galilee, eastward. And in the direction of Beth Jeshemoth and the Sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and Edri and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salkah and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites and, and over half of the Gilead, to the boundary of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So, as this is recorded for us, what we just see is two kings. There were two kings defeated by Moses before the children of Israel entered into the promised land. It was on the eastern border of the Jordan. And Moses gave that land to two and a half tribes that requested that they receive that as their inheritance. So Moses defeats just two kings. But now let's jump to the other side of the river, the west side, and read what Joshua did. Kings defeated by Joshua. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. From Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, that rises towards Seir, and Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, and in the land of the Hivites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, one. Which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Lebna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. This is crazy. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasheron won, the king of Madon won, the king of Hazor won, the king of Shimron Miron won, the king of Akshaf won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Jokneam and Carmel won, the king of Dor and Naphtor won, the king of Goyim and Galilee won, the king of Tirzah won, and all 31 kings. Man, 15 kings I know 16 kings to the south, 15 kings to the north. Joshua took them all. And I think that this is amazing because I'm like, 
Joshua for us is a picture of Jesus. Moses to me is a picture of the law. It's like, yeah, he took down a couple. But look what Joshua did. Look at the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is this picture. The defeat of all of the enemies. Every single one defeated. 31 kings in the land. Like I think about these guys, their names aren't mentioned. Just says the place where they were kings. You know, in their day, they would have been like well-known. People would have known. Oh yeah, the king of Bethlehem? Yeah, that's uh, so-and-so. The king of like Jerusalem? That's so-and-so. People would have known their names. They were like the famous people in their day. Yet their names aren't listed. It's interesting. The Holy Spirit did not care to list their names in Scripture. Just the places where they ruled, but we don't even know who they were. Sports fans out there saw this week that like the biggest contract was doled out ever in the history of sports. 503 million bucks to Patrick Mahomes for a 10-year contract. Isn't that crazy? When the contract kicks in, Patrick will make almost 5,800 bucks an hour, 24 hours a day for 10 years. <laughs> Isn't that insane? That is insane. You know that years from now, People will say this, Patrick who? Who? Mahomes who? God didn't care to write down these names. He didn't. But you know there's a spot where he writes down names and it matters for all of eternity. He keeps track of those names. The Bible says it's in the Lamb's book of life. There Jesus, the, the Lord writes down the name of those who put their trust in Jesus. And I just think about this, I think, wow, you know, so what? You were king. <laughs> so what? You signed your contract. To have your name written down in eternity is what matters. And, and this book, you know, the, the Bible, this, this book is full of words that that the Lord says will never pass away, but you know whose names aren't recorded there? These 31 kings. Not mentioned. And as we read this, like as I just considered this text this, this morning, what I wanted to do is just wrap it up this way. I, I, to observe some things about the Lord and His character and His nature as we read about the defeat of all of these kings. The first thing I think of is this, is the righteousness of God. You know, you read this text and some people are really bothered when they read the Bible and they see the harshness of God's actions. This is brutal, isn't it? Like, who's kidding who? I'm, I'm, I have to say that I'm like not one of those guys that gets really bothered by that. It's just the truth. I read it and I, I'm like, oh, cool. War is so fascinating. What's going on here? And so I don't get totally bothered by it, but I know many people do and I probably should be more bothered by it. <laughs> And I guess we sh I should say this, we should, we have to keep in mind how corrupt these people were. And that's what we so often forget as we just read it on the surface. These nations, these kings, the people that they led, they practice every vile thing that you can imagine. They, all of them, sacrificed their own children to their gods and to their idols which I think is happening in our culture. Thousand, 
thousand children a day sacrificed so you won't be poor. <laughs> These nations were given many years, many years and many opportunities to turn from their wickedness, to turn from their evil like Rahab. You know, they could have done what Rahab did. Rahab was a woman living as a harlot, running a house of prostitution. What she was doing in the sight of the Lord was wicked, but Rahab did this. When she heard about the Lord, she turned. And she turned in repentance towards the Lord. And instead of pursuing her path of destruction, and the judgment of these nations, as we just consider this, the judgment on these nations was a declaration that, that God is righteous and God ultimately judges sin. He brings his judgment against the rebellion of mankind against him. You know, he's very patient. In fact, his patience ensures that his judgment will come slowly. It comes slowly. But his righteousness ensures that his judgment does eventually come. It comes. And instead of resisting God, these folks had the opportunity to repent. And they didn't. And I think for us, you know, instead of resisting God because we feel bad, we read this story and we feel bad for those people, don't you? Instead of resisting God because we feel bad for the Canaanites, we should realize that if we follow in their pattern, resisting God, we too will surely meet His judgment. That's what the righteousness of God is all about. When we read or hear these accounts in Scripture, the proper response should be this. What does God actually want from me so that I don't end up in the position that those folks ended up in? And for them, the proper response was this, to repent and to turn from their sin and their wicked ways. And part of God's judgment against sin is this, is that He hardens human hearts. Isn't that crazy? But that's what God does. It's one of the ways that He brings His judgment is He's bringing his message of repentance and people refuse, he just works in a heart to harden it, to give it over to that which it desires. And instead of surrendering to Israel and seeking God for his mercy, what did the Canaanites do? They just, con they just continued on their path of destruction. Tried this very same move that the kings of the south tried. Formed their coalition and defeat God's people. And look, the warning of Scripture for us is this. When we keep rejecting God's truth, He judges us by hardening our own hearts to our own destruction. <laughs> and I just think, wow, that's a scary thing. That's a fearful thing. And so in light of these accounts, like here's the practical application we should walk away with. The question, it's this, what does a righteous God require of me? What does a righteous God require of me? Here's another thing I see about the Lord in here. His faithfulness. His faithfulness. Joshua is filled with example after example of the faithfulness of God. And, and this text is just one more example that we read this morning. Each of Israel's conquests was testimony to the fact of God's ability to keep His promises. That God is faithful. Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just be obedient to what I 
tell you to do. And, and I will show myself faithful to my promises and, and to my word. And so if I was to say, what's the application from us when we think of God's faithfulness? It's this. Just be obedient to what God is calling you to do. And God will be faithful his, to his character and faithful to you. The other thing I see about the Lord is this, is his sufficiency. The sufficiency of the Lord. A constant theme throughout the book of Joshua is the fact that God fights for his people, that God is fighting on behalf of his people. Now, Israel had to go into battle. They had to go into battle. They had to pick up their swords and go deal with the enemy. But the text makes it clear that they're the secondary characters. That the main character is the Lord. That the Lord was the one who was sufficient to win the battle, not them. And the sufficiency of the Lord was especially on display in Israel's victory over the Anakim, the giants that were in the land of Canaan. Forty years earlier, these giants had so terrorized the Israelites that they had refused to enter the land. And now the Lord shows his sufficiency as they just go. The, the giants, yeah, you know, the giants don't, giants don't shrink. You know, I don't, not that I know of. Is that true, Greg? Do giants shrink? Like, giants don't shrink. So in 40 years, it's not like these giants had just shrunk so that a new generation of Israelites could deal with them when they came on the scene. No, the difference was this generation believed in the Lord and in his sufficiency to take down the enemy. They believed that God was greater than the giants that they were facing. And the same God who is sufficient, was sufficient for Israel, is, hey, equally sufficient for you and I today. Amen? No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the difficulty, no matter what giant we're facing, God is sufficient. And as you read this story, like as we think about where we've been today, the, the, the character who played the role in illustrating all of this about God, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his sufficiency was this man, Joshua, a faithful servant. But when we zoom out in the scripture, we know this, that Joshua is just a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus is the main character in all of God's story. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is sufficient. See, the character of God that's seen in this text is a picture of Jesus. And I think about the righteousness, the faithfulness, and the sufficiency of Jesus. And you have to think about what? The cross and the resurrection. All that Jesus did to save you and I, who God had counted as unrighteous because of our rebellion against Him. Whom God had counted under His wrath because we had sinned against Him. But Jesus came and lived the righteous life in our place. And and Jesus came and showed himself to be the faithful servant, and he offered himself on the cross. And, and on offering himself, Jesus gave a life sufficient, a sacrifice sufficient to cover the sins of all of mankind. Gave his life on that cross, was buried, placed in a tomb, where three days later he, he rose from the dead, showing his righteousness and his faithfulness and the sufficiency of the sacrifice that he made for our sin. 
And the Bible just simply says this, that if you'll believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you'll confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. Look at the warning of this text is this. Don't continue blazing in your path of rebellion and resistance against God. God is righteous. And though He is patient, the day of judgment is coming. And the call for us is to turn to our Joshua, to turn our lives over to our Jesus who is righteous and faithful and sufficient. Look at two things as Martin and Leanne come to lead us in closing song. Two things jump to me from this text as I think of all these things. They're the commands that Joshua was given. Don't be afraid. Be obedient. Be obedient. And you know, like just in this culture, in the things that are happening around us in this day, the message is this, isn't it? Be afraid. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Joshua. I can deal with these giants. Just be obedient to me. Church, let's be obedient. Would you stand with me? Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of Scripture. Jesus, we just acknowledge before your Father in heaven, before our brothers and sisters, before each person here, Jesus, that we believe that you're our Joshua, that you're our commander, that you're leading us in victory over our giants. Jesus, we declare by faith that you are righteous, that Jesus, you are faithful, that Jesus, you are sufficient for all things. And thank you, Jesus, that you're leading us from victory to victory. And Jesus, in you, we put our faith and our hope and our trust. Lord, this morning, we repent of our sin. Jesus, would you forgive us in the areas where we are rebellious against you and we have ignored your word and ignored your instruction. Lord, right now, we repent of that. We ask that you would forgive us. We ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us from unrighteousness, and that you would purify us from our sins. Jesus, that we would be washed in your blood that is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, protect us from hardening our hearts. Oh God, give us soft hearts. Give us soft hearts to you, Jesus, and to your word. Lead us, Jesus, from victory to victory. Jesus, we believe in you. We put our hope in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, lead us in the life of obedience. Jesus, lead us towards trusting you more and more and more. Thank you, Lord, that we don't need to be afraid. Thank you, Lord, that we need not fear. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. Thank you, you're sufficient, and you're righteous. And Jesus, you're our king. We worship you this morning. Amen.